I've got some great news. It's now possible to get your premium subscription via PayPal or your credit card. The premium subscription allows you to access all episodes of Brain Science, including about six years of content recorded before 2013 and all episode transcripts. A great way to access premium and free content is through the free Brain Science mobile app, which is available for iOS, Android, and Windows Phone. You'll find it in your favorite app store. To learn more about premium, go to brainsciencepodcast.com. Welcome to Brain Science with Dr. Ginger Campbell. This is episode 129, and today we have a very special interview with pioneering neuroscientist Dr. Brenda Milner. Before I get started, I want to thank everyone who has sent me emails telling me that you're glad that brain science is back from its six-month hiatus. Your feedback strengthens my resolve to keep the show going. Hopefully, many of you know who Dr. Brenda Milner is, but just in case you don't, I'll give you a brief overview of her career, which spans over 50 years at the McGill Neurological Institute in Montreal, Canada. Dr. Milner is a psychologist by training, and she's best known for the work she did with the famous patient HM and also with Roger Sperry's famous split brain patients. In these days of brain scans, it's easy to forget the importance of well-designed experiments. And in this interview, Dr. Milner gives us a first-hand look about what this work was really like. This conversation first aired in 2008 when Dr. Milner was 90 years old, and I'm happy to report that she is still in good health. While we're talking, I mentioned another interview that she did on a podcast called Futures in Biotech. At the time, I was trying to complement rather than duplicate Mark Peltier's interview, and I encouraged listeners to check out Futures in Biotech. Unfortunately, that show pod faded years ago, but the good news is you can still listen to his original interview by going to the link I will include in the show notes at brainsciencepodcast.com. That's also where you can find episode transcripts and other resources. As always, you can write to me at brainsciencepodcast at gmail.com. I'll be back after the interview to review some key ideas and make a few brief announcements. Enjoy. Dr. Miller, I really enjoyed listening to your talk with Mark Peltier on Futures in Biotech. We've talked a lot about your work on this show, so it's a great honor to have you as guest on the Brain Science Podcast. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. One of the things that I really enjoyed about your interview with Mark was the way that you put your work into historical context. Now, when you first became an experimental psychologist, was behaviorism dominant or was I wrong about that? But you were both wrong and right, because where I was, it certainly was not dominant. I was in Cambridge, England, Cambridge University, in a strong department of experimental psychology, chaired by Professor Bartlett, who was famous for his work on remembering. Well, again, it's what you mean by behaviorism. I should go back to that, because there are two ways of thinking of that expression. I think you're probably using it as a school in psychology, where you're emphasizing stimulus and response and ignoring the state of the mind of the organism that's receiving the stimuli and responding to them. I suppose the prototypical example of that would be Skinnerian psychology. I would say always being protected from that because that has never been anything that was popular in the departments in which I was working. And the precursors of that, Clark Hull and so on, complicated uh, stimulus-response sort of uh, psychology theories. In Cambridge, they were somewhat frowned upon because they took a more biological approach always, even though we couldn't be looking into the brain at that point, that always the idea that you have to keep in mind what the organism brings to any situation and stimulate from outside, never impinge upon a sort of tabula rasa or bounce off the person. They impinge on a highly active state of mind or state of brain are modified by it also. 
so that behaviorism was never, in that sort of theoretical sense, was never the school into which I was exposed. And later, when I was with Don Hebb in Montreal, of course, Hebb again was very opposed to Skinnerian psychology and was very much emphasizing what the individual brought to the situation and the fact that the brain is constantly active and whatever comes in from outside can only modify what is ongoing activity. So that is what I was brought up in. However, if you think of behaviorism in a totally different way, then I suppose I'm a behaviorist in the sense that I'm a behavioral neuroscientist, that what I'm studying and measuring and exploring is, in fact, behavior. I'm not particularly interested in working on consciousness and so on. It's very fashionable nowadays. In all this work on memory and the tasks and so on, we are actually measuring and studying behavior in a controlled experimental way, whereas when we're just mixing with our friends, and chatting, we are observing behavior and responding to it, but not in a scientific way. But when you're doing a psychology experiment, then you have things designed in a controlled way so that you plan to measure certain outcomes and measure them. Although we do call our department here cognitive neuroscience, I always think of myself as a behavioral neuroscientist. Nowadays, people tend to use that term just to describe work with uh, non-human species, but I think that's narrowing it unnecessarily, and that's what I consider myself to be. But that is not the theoretical school of behaviorism. So I'm not a theoretical behaviorist, but my methods are focused in the scientific study of behavior and trying to relate activity in the brain. Does that answer your question? (laughs) Yes, very much. And it really does help. I went to college in the mid-70s and I took one psychology course and I hated it terribly because basically we went into this room and there was these red lights that came on when they were going to give us these stupid quizzes. I was so turned off psychology that I don't think I looked at it again for years. That, I think, was too much behaviorism of the Skinner type. (laughs) I don't know. It doesn't sound familiar to me at all. (laughs) But it's a good reminder that outside of the United States, Skinner's influence probably wasn't as much as we might have thought. But you did mention doing experiments, and I remember that you said when you were talking with Mark that when you started out, it was rare for experimental psychologists to work with patients. You said you worked with college students and animals. It seems like it would be particularly challenging to design good experiments with patients. Can you talk a little bit about how one goes about designing a good experiment? Well, you have to have a hypothesis, I think, to start with. The experiments, those studies that I was doing with patients was working with patients who had known focal brain injuries, not people who had just something diffusely wrong with the brain, because you can't learn a lot from that, I don't think. But particularly, I was very privileged to work with neurosurgical patients where really I was very privileged because these were young adults, were not having any life-threatening condition. They had focal epilepsy, which impairs your quality of life and was not responding to drugs. And so it's possible to remove an area of the brain which is malfunctioning and causing seizure, but a focal area and part of one temporal lobe, for example, and you can have examined them and tested them in many ways before and after. Initially, you don't know too much what you're going to find, except if the patients themselves are complaining that they're having trouble with memory, then you think you might be working in the domain of memory. But also, I've always got a lot of inspiration from work of other people's work with monkeys and with rats to get some clues as to what might be profitable hypotheses to test and then to see what might have changed. And then later, when you're confronted with this very unusual situation, I mean, what I was talking about there was group data, and you can compare the effects of removal from one part of the brain as with the same area on the other hemisphere. You know, one would be more in language areas and the other in more nonverbal spatial or perceptual functions. I was saying that all this is group data where you're looking at small effects of planned operations and comparing groups statistically and so on. But if you move then to looking at an individual patient, like the patient HM who lost his memory after bilateral removal of the medial structure of the temporal lobe, sparing the rest of the hemispheres, and you're confronted with a person who is forgetting the events of his life as he lives them. I mean, we're familiar with this condition now of this continuous anterograde amnesia, forgetfulness moving forward and forward in your life so you're not building up your autobiography. Now, there the challenge was from the beginning is to say, what can such a person learn? Is it possible? After you've established the magnitude of this effect, it becomes a little unsatisfying, actually, to a psychologist just to say, this is somebody who can't learn anything. 
you can't prove the universal negative, you know. So you have to <laughs> try to find something that he can learn. And the breakthrough that I had in showing that he could acquire motor skills. Well, you're asking how you do such experiments in a sense. This is on one patient or two or three patients. It's not group data. Patients with very dramatic post-surgical memory loss going on and affecting their lives. Then the challenge is to find some sort of task they might be able to improve on. And I had the hunch that maybe something in the motor learning task because there's some evidence that motor learning might be mediated somewhat differently than some other kinds of learning. You acquire your motor skills best when you're young. When you're quite young. They're remarkably stable from season to season. You have to practice doing them, your tennis or your whatever, your skills. And then you can't really introspect and say what you've learned. I mean, this is very striking that if you were to be improving with practice, improving your stroke at tennis or at golf or whatever, somebody says, well, what have you learned? You're forming better. What have you learned? You cannot possibly put into words what it is that you're doing slightly differently. And also the attempt to do so spoils your performance. So it just looked at these descriptive ways that one might think, that this was a domain of skills that might be mediated differently without you having an idea of, you know, how or where. But it made it important to sample the motor learning thing, which I did with the mirror drawing with HM, and then got this wonderful, exciting moment when he was showing this beautiful learning of a skill without any memory or awareness that he'd ever done it before. I mean, total amnesia for the practice he'd done on it, and, but the improvement, which showed you could have really dissociable different memory systems in the brain. But I suppose it starts from having a not a strong hypothesis that this would be so. I mean, this was really serendipitous in that sense. I was absolutely delighted and astonished to see this. But when you're trying to decide what sort of tasks to use, well, this might be a tapping into different systems in the brain just because the rules of normal motor learning are somewhat different from the rules of some other kinds of learning. I really appreciate the fact that you mentioned that if you're going to do a good experiment, you have to have some sort of hypothesis, even if the hypothesis is at the beginning as simple as there might be different kinds of memory. Yes. And then you have your information, like you mentioned, the hunch that procedural memory might be different. And then you go from there. Yes. On my show, one of the things I try to do, I have non-scientist listeners, probably more non-scientist listeners than Mark does, because my show's not quite as technical as his. And one of the things I try to share with people is just kind of a sense of how science is really done. And that's the reason why I asked you that, because I think sometimes people don't understand what makes a science experiment compared to, say, when we're just goofing around in our garage, you know, to see what will happen. Yes, I think it's more the controlled conditions, you know, that you have to be very careful that you're not giving the animal a person a extra cure, a little nudge, you know, to draw up very rigorously, you know, how many trials you're going to do, how your what experimental conditions are going to be, and so on. And if you're doing this in a group of participants, that you have maintained these conditions constant. It's a lot of really into control. You have your hypothesis, and you want to set it up so that when you get your results, you can interpret them, or maybe you can get results and say, well, this is interesting. I suppose the process then is to go to the next stage. You get some finding. Now, how do I interpret this finding? It could be A or it could be B. And in order to do that, you have to devise some further experiment to put these in opposition, you know, to have a prediction that such and such an outcome will support hypothesis one and another outcome would support another hypothesis. Right. It's really a matter of control and methodology, but it's really systematic common sense, really. It starts with common sense, I think. The hunches are common sense, in a way, or soaking yourself in the field, being interested. In. For example, I was listening to someone criticize the famous Stanford prison experiment because of a lot of different methodological concerns, including the question of whether or not that was really, truly a controlled experiment. I saw a German film, and then I was told that that was modeled on, was this where they, they assigned some people to prisoner roles and some people to, right, yeah. and really what you're showing that the role you're playing in those circumstances makes you behave in ways that you wouldn't think you would be capable of behaving. Is that the study? Right. People behave very brutally and when they're put in control as warders or something, and yet you wouldn't think a priori perhaps that these people would be capable of that. That was the kind of study they did, wasn't it, in Stanford? Yes. I haven't read the original experiment. I saw a German movie a few years ago at a film festival here, 
I think it was called the experiment or something, in which they took people and assigned them arbitrarily to these roles. I found it a very disturbing, it's actually extremely disturbing, especially the humiliations they put people through, right? Right. The original experiment was done in the 70s. I don't know exactly what year. And I think that it obviously would never be able to be replicated because now the ethical concerns would prevent. That's right. It's just an example of how difficult some things could be to study in a controlled way. Well, you see, I think you're absolutely right that you've taken there an example from social psychology. That would be called social psychology, I think. Whereas I've always working with groups of people, but not on social phenomena nor on emotional phenomena. I've really worked very austerely on, I've chosen to have more comfortable working and maybe intellectualizing my, what I do or whatever. It says something about me, but I have never wanted to work on emotion. I never wanted to work in social psychology at all. It's a very legitimate field, but it's not one that has ever attracted me. But I think there's no question that once you get into those fields, you are getting so many variables and that just methodologically, they must be incredibly difficult to control compared with just, you know, seeing if somebody can learn a list of words. You know, it's not the same thing at all. I can see that such a study would lend itself to a lot of criticism, even though the criticisms might not all be valid, but it would invite criticism because it's so multifactorial in a way, you know, a study like that. There's so much involved. The more things are involved in your experimental setting, the more difficult it is, of course, to control it, I think. So I, I wouldn't question that there would be things that one would criticize. But yes, I think it would be unquestionably unethical nowadays. You know, there are all sorts of studies, individual studies, where the ethics now, I think, would be questioned, where you can show that people will increase the, and they led to believe that they're increasing the pain that the subject experiences, that they still will go on and do it. People will do quite nasty things. <laughs> I don't think we can argue with that. I want to get back to your work, Dr. Milner. Of course, you're famous for your work on covering various kinds of memory, but when you were talking with Mark, you mentioned that your original interest was in perception. And I was wondering if you've ever had a chance to pursue that interest. Not really. Yeah, I've always been interested in the interaction of different uh, sense modalities. And during the war, I was working on uh, what well, we were working on really applied psychology during the war, trying to see whether airmen should be fighters or bombers. But we were using a sort of tasks that we were interested in doing research on and this business of whether you can trust your instruments or not and you how information from different sensory modalities, vision and posture and so on interact. These are sort of borderline between senses. I was going to, and I really regret that I never was able to do this. When I came to Montreal, after I'd been teaching at the University of Montreal, French University, when I decided to do a PhD at McGill with Donald Hebb, my project, before I ever got involved with patients or the Montreal Neurological, but my project then was to look at tactile form perception, this I'm talking about perception, in the congenitally blind. If you're not congenitally blind, if you become blind later in life, you have built up all sorts of visual imagery of what you're doing. And so your approach to many things may be like a sighted person. But if you're congenitally blind, you have no experience of vision, you'll be using your visual areas for something else. Then it's very, very interesting. I wanted to see how they were forming concepts. I had different sort of nonsensical shapes and so on that had some common feature. And you arrive at it's a tactile concept formation that by exploring by touch, as you explore these forms, you arrive at a notion of what is the common feature. Now, a person who has vision, even though you're doing this with your eyes closed, you're doing it by palpation, people tend to approach, we would, you would if you were doing it now, tend to approach with big sweeping movements of your hand. I'm doing it now automatically as you explore a raised form on a cardboard sheet. But the congenitally blind person has a totally different approach. They, they start just feeling the little edges and the little broken up bits that, as you do with Braille or something, a totally different way of actually exploring this. And I was very interested in seeing how they would arrive at common concepts using such a totally different approach. And so this is a kind of interesting perception that I had. But I was never, as I say, never pursued that as soon as I got this opportunity to come to the Montreal Neurological, as Heb asked me if I would like to. And I got so fascinated by the patients here. And although I started there with some visual perceptual tasks, it was very clear that the profitable way to go, I mean, profitable in terms of generating results, was to go through the field of memory. 
And so I stayed with memory ever since. It wasn't that I started life in psychology thinking memory is what I want to work on. So I've never really gone back to perception. And I guess that's probably a common experience for many scientists to end up in a different place than where they thought they were going. Oh, yes. And especially, of course, if you have found yourself with a patient population that you're working with, because you get the clues from the patients, you know, if the patient says they have a problem with memory. Maybe they're wrong. A lot of people think they have a problem with memory and they've really got a problem with attention. But the thing is that if the patient believes they have a problem with memory, you have to investigate that. As a medical doctor, if the patient says he has a headache or something, you have to explore that. You mustn't start looking at something totally different or you're not going to help the patient or find out more about the patient. And also, you're not going to help yourself because you're not going to gather interesting or illuminating data. So that the situation you're in is going to guide the questions that you ask. On the other hand, you choose your situation. I mean, I would not, there are many situations in which I would not have been happy. I personally would not have been happy working in a psychiatric department where many psychologists work. This would not appeal to me. I would not be very good at working with very small children, whereas absolutely wonderful psychology work goes on in developmentally. I mean, it's terribly important to know how all these skills develop and how the brain develops. It's a magnificent field of research, but it wouldn't do for me. I would not be at ease in it, you know? You would do what comes naturally to you, you know? Absolutely. Well, thanks to your work and the work of many others, of course, experimental psychology is now an essential part of cognitive neuroscience. I was wondering if you have any thoughts about the increasingly interdisciplinary nature of neuroscience. Oh, I think it's wonderful. (laughs) Absolutely wonderful. Of course, I live in an institute. I'm privileged, again, to be in the Montreal Neurological Institute because from the very beginning, years ago, uh, this institute was founded 75 years ago, and Dr. Penfield, a neurosurgeon who founded this really with a great interest in the surgical treatment of epilepsy, he uh, is pioneering this. But he always wanted as multidisciplinary as possible and also as multinational as possible, which was very nice. He always encouraged people to come and study and work here from all the quarters of the world you could think of. And he had people from Japanese and Europeans and Americans and all kinds of people from all kinds of places combining in their interests. And even in those early days when neuroscience was still pretty simple in a sense or pretty young, We still had room for biochemists and electrophysiologists and psychologists and, of course, surgeons and neurologists. And then as the field itself has grown, we've got representatives of all the, you know, of the molecular and the systems, the people who want to look at the small details of what is happening in individual nerve cells to the people who are looking at whole populations of neurons and aspects of behavior but all under one roof in one building. And so you can talk to these people back and forth. You know, it's very, very enriching that you can move around in a place which also has the surgery and the hospital, the patients and the basic science all together. It's enriching for everybody. So I feel very happy about this melding of disciplines. It remains a challenge to bring the really molecular, the really nitty-gritty details into sort of meaningful conversation, dialogue with the people working at a systems level. Nowadays, of course, students going in taking degrees in neuroscience as distinct from individual fields are being instructed and learning all these fields. Genetics, tremendously important. I really am total ignoramus in genetics and I can go to some of these molecular lectures and I just don't have the vocabulary. But I'm also quite sure that many of those people go to some of the systems lectures and they don't have the vocabulary either. Now young people are being taught both, which is great. This won't still totally resolve this because I think there are some people who are happier working on a bench, you know, at the molecular level or chemistry lab or something, and people who are happier working with individuals, individual animals or individual people doing functional imaging and things like that. And they're very different kinds of personalities. And so I don't think it's going to be so easy to get the two sides combining in in one head, but that's where we have to go. Yeah, I was talking to Dr. Michael Arbib about this. He's in charge of the graduate program, I think, at USC. And he said that it's a challenge to give students today both sufficient breadth and depth in a single area, enough depth that they can then make a contribution. He's absolutely right. Yes, it's very difficult. So do you think there's any particular contributions that psychology 
makes or can make? Oh, I hope so. <laughs> yes. I, well, I think, first of all, we pose some of the important questions, right, about different kinds of learning. What are the questions that we want people to tackle at a molecular level? We still have to do this experimental analysis of behavior. And now, of course, we have the tools of functional neuroimaging, so it's possible to study the activity in one removed, of course, but in the brain of a sort of normal, healthy, living person while they solve problems, or they do memory things, they do perceptual tasks, whatever. And this has been sort of fruitful. But I think the psychologists are having to produce the questions, I would say. We need all these technical people and their insights into breaking our questions in a finer way also, I think, by the, what they learn from the more detailed analysis. But I think we always need the psychologists to bring some of the sort of basic questions. If our goal is to understand brain-behavior relations as neuroscientists, we are trying to do that, no? Yes. I interviewed a couple of people about neuroimaging a few weeks ago, and one of the things that they pointed out was that it's a team effort, that the psychologist is very important to designing the experiments properly. Otherwise, imaging in and of itself is not enough. Oh, of course, exactly. Imaging, it's a tool, right? It's a wonderful tool getting more and more refined, incredibly refined tools. But you have to have a question, you know, it's no good having a wonderful tool if you don't know what you want to use it for. Right. 30 years ago, when I was thinking about going to medical school, medicine was just starting to open up for women. So we didn't really have many female role models. What was it like for you as a woman trying to get into your PhD program in that period right after World War II? Oh, well, I've never felt any difficulty about being a woman. I mean, I've never felt discriminated against being a woman. Of course, I came from England and was teaching, actually, at the University of Montreal. In England before the war, nobody did PhDs. They did research, the important degree. And it's still, even to this day, although they do PhDs, the important degree in England is that first degree, how well you do, whether you, you know, get a first-class degree or just a scrape-by degree or whatever. It determines really your whole future career. It's very, very important. Those exams that you write when you're 21 determines really your future life in England. And the professors, and there was only one professor in the departments in those days, the head of a department, of a major department like Oxford or Cambridge, would not have a PhD because it was not part of the system. You did your research and you published and you became known, but it was not part of the system. And it was only when I came to North America after the war that I realized that was another reason why I decided I have to do a PhD because I was able to teach at the University of Montreal, the French university, because I spoke French and they were so glad to have somebody that could teach experimental psychology in French. But though I enjoyed myself there, I did not want to do that for the rest of my days. And I realized then that I should go ahead and get a PhD. I think perhaps the question, you phrased it as getting a PhD. I don't think that would be a problem. Perhaps the question you were really meaning to ask was, what was it like coming to the Neurological Institute, which is a medical environment, where there were not that many women? It's true. Or even during the war, when I was on a radar research establishment and there was a woman librarian, and otherwise there were no women officers in the place. They were all men and they were physicists and so on. I've never felt discriminated against. And here at the Neurological Institute in 1950, this institute, as I'm sure the National Hospital Queen Square in London would have been even more so, was very hierarchically organized. It was very authoritarian environment. It isn't now, but it was then. I imagine any medical school was like that, I think. Yeah. Psychology department wasn't, but medical schools, yes. And so Dr. Penfield, you know, was very definitely the chief. We used to call him the chief, and he is head of everything, and there was this sort of pyramid. But it was not based on gender lines. I never saw any evidence of gendered attitudes in Dr. Penfield. If you were a student, you were a bit lower in the hierarchy and so on and so forth. But it was never a gender thing. I mean, the only time in my life when I really felt handicapped by being a woman was when I was competing with other women. When I decided in my high school that I absolutely wanted to go to Cambridge and that I had to get scholarships because I had no money and that I wanted to do it in mathematics. And the mathematics wasn't particularly well taught. I went to a girls' school. It was a very good school, but they sent me to the university, the local Manchester University, to get extra coaching in mathematics to get in and to get this place in Cambridge where there were only, at that time, in Cambridge University, and Oxford was the same, I'm sure, in Cambridge University, there were two women's colleges. And of course, the men's colleges were entirely for men. 
And there was a rule in the university that you couldn't have more than, now it takes three years to get a degree. So those three years summed up across the two colleges, there could not be more than 400 women in the university at any one time. And to get a place there, you were competing with women across the whole of England, right? This was a time in my life when you could say as handicapped being a woman, it would be much easier to get in if I'd been a boy. But once I was in Cambridge, you know, it was up to me. I'd never felt any discrimination anywhere, you know. Do you have any advice for women scientists today or women interested in science today? Well, I mean, go ahead. Women are doing so well in everything, right? I mean, if you look at the, I'm sure it's the same in North America. I think this is true here also. And in our medical school, I teach in the medical school here, and there are more women than men in the medical school every year. Go ahead and you can do it. There's no reason why you shouldn't be able to do it if you want to do it. Now, the question is, is it going to appeal to you? And are the difficulties later on, you know, in terms of family and all the rest of it, we know all these practical questions. But as far as doing the science, as far as the intellectual part of it, go ahead and do it. What about young people in general that are considering a career in science? Or maybe I should ask you about neuroscience because I get a lot of emails from young people that are in college and they're getting turned on to the brain, they say. And I just got one from a physicist who said that he really wanted to get into neuroscience, but he wasn't sure how coming from physics. But it seems like everyone I talk to says it doesn't matter what science field. If you really want to get into neuroscience, you've got something to offer. Oh, you definitely have. And coming from physics, you know, you get in through imaging and those things. I mean, we have physicists. You were talking about multidisciplinary. We have a young man in the next office to mine here at the Neuro, just a stone's throw from where I'm talking to you now, is a 35-year-old physicist from England who has just come here as a tenured position with a really important role to play in improving our positron emission tomography, improving the images, the technique. You can get interested in whatever aspect you want. Physicists are highly valued and are playing very key roles. So coming from physics is certainly no difficulty. Where I see a problem, really, where I really do worry about the neurosciences is because they are so very attractive and we are producing so many young, talented people. And then we have to find the jobs for them. A lot of us feel like helping to support postdoctoral fellows and so on. It's fine. Students have no trouble if they're good getting funding right up through the PhD and then maybe for a year or two after that. But then if they want to go further, they can, of course, get siphoned off into industry or something like that. But supposing that they really have a feel for the academic life, it is very, very difficult. However bright you are, it's quite difficult to find a nice niche in a university to get started on an academic career. As I say, you do your postdoc and then the money runs out. Obviously, you're not supposed to be a postdoc forever. And I feel that perhaps we do need to give some thought to this. Are we overproducing these bright young people? Or do we want to try to devote more funds and attention to that necessarily rather long period in which they have to more or less build up a little reputation for themselves before they even get an academic job. Whereas in the old days, once you got your PhD, it was pretty easy. There were universities crying out for teachers, for research workers, you know. So that is a problem. That shouldn't discourage you from going into science, but it's still a little disturbing. Yeah, I think they did a survey of a class. I think it was Yale, the students that got PhDs in molecular biology maybe 15 years ago. Yes. And they discovered that the majority of them are not in academic positions now. That's true. I think there was an article in Science about that quite recently. Yes. Yes, I think that's so. Yeah, I worry about losing so much talent to industry when the knowledge then becomes proprietary and doesn't get shared the way. Right. I agree with you. Yes, it is worrying. Since 2007, Brain Science has been sponsored by Audible.com, the world's leading provider of downloadable audio content. As I mentioned last month, if you want to know which books featured on this show are available from Audible, just check out the bibliography page at brainsciencepodcast.com forward slash bibliography. This month, I'm recommending a book called Patient HM, A Story of Memory, Madness, and Family Secrets by Luke Didrich, who is the grandson of the surgeon who did HM's surgery. If you aren't already an Audible subscriber, you can check it out by going to audible.com 
forward slash brain science. If you have a few more minutes, I wanted to ask you a question that I saved for in case we had enough time. <laughs> I'm wary of those questions. <laughs> no, no. It's just I was wondering if you would talk a little bit about your work with the split brain patients. Oh, yes, with pleasure. Now, that was fascinating and that was such a privilege. Really, it was. That's really taking me back. What I was really interested in when I first came to the neuro and before I encountered the amnesia, you know, when you encountered these patients with huge memory impairments, then as I say, you get absorbed in that. But I've always been very, very interested in the uh, hemispheric differences, hemispheric specialization in the human brain. And I've always been very, very interested in the right hemisphere if you take a typical human being, not for all of us, of course, but for the typical right-handed human being. The left hemisphere is the one that is dominant for language and for programming of voluntary action and so on. And so it used to be called the dominant hemisphere, not the dominant hemisphere for speech, but just the dominant hemisphere. And when I first went into this field, there was such an obvious contempt among neurologists. It was quite disgusting for the silent right hemisphere, almost as though it was a spare tire. You know, it was a very good thing that if you had the misfortune of having your left hemisphere damaged or something that, at birth, that you had the spare tire that would take over, you know. But otherwise, apart from controlling the movement of the opposite side of the body and receiving the opposite visual field and so on, it was really rather despised, which was ridiculous because it's just as big and obviously it would be just as important. So I was always particularly interested in this right hemisphere. That's why I was perhaps looking at some of these perceptual and spatial abilities and so on. And I was doing memory studies on patients with unilateral lesions. These are small deficits associated with epilepsy in the left hemisphere compared with the right and so on. And that was when I met Roger Sperry, who went on to get the Nobel Prize for his work on the split brain population. I met him at a memory meeting in New York City. And we talked, and then he sent me a note afterwards and said, if you're really interested in knowing what goes on on the right side of the fox, that's in the right hemisphere, hop on a plane and come out. And so that was when I started going with a former colleague of mine, Lachlan Taylor. We'd go out for a week or so to Los Angeles, to Pasadena, to Caltech, and work with these patients for intensively for a week. And we were always working on something that was a little different from what Sperry's own students were doing. We tested the patients in their homes and he provided us with a car and so on and so forth. And he obviously wasn't doing that in order for us to duplicate what his own students were doing. So we always went with some special question that we had. Yes, it was absolutely fascinating because here you have the individual that you meet. You realize what this is. It's an operation. And we owe patients with seizures a great debt, science does. But these were patients with seizures which were not just coming from one small area that could be removed. It was difficult to localize. And the goal of this rather drastic surgical procedure was to reduce the incidence of really major convulsive attacks that these patients might have because the idea was that if you interrupt connections between the two halves of the brain, you prevent the spread of activity because an epileptic seizure can begin locally or begin, but then if it spreads to involve both hemispheres rapidly, that is when you're apt to see the major convulsions which are so disturbing to the patients and to everybody else. So this procedure was just to sever the connections of the corpus callosum, this huge fiber tracts which connect the hemispheres together. And of course, the lower parts of the brain are still unified and also your conjugate movements of your eyes as you walk around in the world, the two hemispheres are exposed really to the same input in a sense, in the, except in an experimental situation. This gave Dr. Sperry and his students this amazing possibility of comparing the functions of the two sides of the brain of the same individual. Now, you realize from a scientific point of view, this is a wonderful control experiment. You're always trying to match your subjects to have in different conditions. But here you have the two halves of the, you know, the same individual brain. You couldn't have a better control situation for comparing left and right than that. And then he had his special methods so that you could, well, you could always use touch. What you feel with your left hand with vision excluded is only going to go to the right hemisphere and so on. You could devise these tasks. But what is so disconcerting at first until you get used to it is to realize that you see this person looks perfectly normal just like you or me is sitting in front of you and you start talking to them and then you have to realize that you're only having a conversation with the left cerebral hemisphere because it's only the left hemisphere that 
as saying in the typical right-handed person, and it is the case in this series of patients that the left hemisphere was the dominant hemisphere for speech. And so essentially, it's only the left hemisphere of this seemingly intact individual who has, really has a split brain situation. It's only the left hemisphere that is able to talk to you. And the right hemisphere is really imprisoned, is mute in that sense. And what is really interesting then is all the methods. We did some studies on memory and Sperry did uh, lots and lots of studies on different things by devices. You can train the right hemisphere to put the hand under a screen and palpate something and then after an interval to retrieve it. They can understand that. But the person, the individual sitting there is unable to tell you what it is that the left hand and therefore the right hemisphere is grasping. But the person can only guess. This divided consciousness in one brain, this really captured the popular imagination. Sperry was a magnificent experimental psychologist. But a lot of us feel that some of his most uh, brilliant work was work that he did much earlier in his life on frogs and so on. But what really captured people's minds, you know, was the idea of these two consciousnesses in one brain, so to speak. And it was a great privilege to be able to work with these patients. And in some ways also to compare what we were finding with those patients with what I was finding with HM, amnesic patient, who had intact commissures, you know, it was not a split brain patient, but who was lacking these critical structures for autobiographical memory. I was able to show that even the mute right hemisphere without any words could perform better on some tactile memory tasks than HM could, you see, which had some theoretical importance because it showed that you didn't need to have verbal labels. There were some psychologists who said you can't remember things unless you can apply verbal labels and these amnesic patients are not doing that. I was quite sure this was nonsense, but a very nice way of showing that it was nonsense was to show that the right hemisphere was doing better, although it had no words, was doing better than HM was doing on such a task. It was very, very exciting. I found all the work with the split brain patients very exciting. I'm also very glad that you asked me about it because you say people are interested, or I'm certainly interested in the history of my field. One of the things is how fashions come and go in a field. And memory was unfashionable for a long time and now is, of course, very, very fashionable. And the frontal lobes are extremely fashionable. That's another area I've worked on. But the interesting thing is that all this excitement about the split brain patients, the commissurotomy patients and Sperry's Nobel Prize and so on, and all sorts of rather wild things that you read in the newspapers, like you must start to educate the right hemisphere, which is nonsense because when you've got a person with intact commissures, you're only educating the whole person. You can't educate a hemisphere, you know. But you read all this sort of stuff, you know, the popular press went overboard. And then suddenly nobody talks about, nobody has asked me anything about split brains for ages. I teach the medical students about this, but nobody ever in an interview sort of, you're the first person, I think who has asked me about that. So I was very delighted with your question. I read an older book by Michael Gazanagai. Was he a graduate student of Sperry's? He was a student of Sperry's, yes. It was called The Mind's Past. It's actually one of the books that got me interested in neuroscience. He was talking about how the left hemisphere in these patients would sort of make up stories to explain what the right hemisphere had done. Did you experience that? That's right. They have this need to rationalize. I think we all have a need to rationalize to make sense of things that are happening. And yes, they would do that. And Sperry himself used to like to tell this story in one of his introductory lectures about these patients. They can have this setup where they can flash images briefly into one hemisphere for such a short time that you can't move your eyes. And so you can be sure that the image has gone into one hemisphere. And he would flash pictures, slightly suggestive, sexy pictures into the right hemisphere. This young woman, NG, she blushed a little. Of course, emotion can get transmitted by lower centers that are not separated. You see, so the patient probably felt a bit uncomfortable, whatever. And the left hemisphere says, oh, Dr. Sperry, what a strange machine you have there or something. Or made some comment about the machine or what Sperry was doing because he obviously had no idea of what actually had happened. Did not have access, but had access to the emotion, you know, and was rationalizing, trying to understand the way she was feeling, I suppose. There's also a very annoying tendency of the left hemisphere to sort of interfere with your experiments because, as I say, we used to test them in their homes. We would drive out to the home. We tested actually more patients than Sperry had tested by then. We got more of his group active and, uh, and he worked with them. But 
Until we went out, he had only worked really with a couple of these patients, the star performers, so to speak. There's this NG, and then there was LB, who was really sort of smart, alecky young man, quite bright. I think he was supposed to have said when he was asked how he felt after the surgery that he had a splitting headache. Anyway, this patient was very verbal, you know, I mean, his left hemisphere was very active, let's put it that way. And it could be quite annoying if we would do an experiment, say, one of the experiments that we were doing on touch would be where the patient is now working with the right hemisphere and the left hand under a screen, the hand, the sort of experiment I was describing to you earlier, where there were pieces of wire coat hanger bent into different shapes, you know, nonsense shapes. You'd have to palpate this and then be quiet for a minute or two and then put his hand in again and find the shape. So this was all addressed to the right hemisphere. But then in the middle, and this would happen, the patient gets up and says, I want a Coke, and rushes to the fridge and gets a Coke, you see, he's in his kitchen. So the left hemisphere is very much the boss in this way. And working with the right hemisphere is quite tricky because it's really very underprivileged (laughs) without words. And it's um, very, very fascinating patients they were. When you were working with patients like H.M., he couldn't remember long enough to even come up with an explanation of what was going on for him. Could he or did he? Oh, well, he knew. Yes, he H.M. knew he had a very bad memory. He was never confabulating and he was very logical about things. He lived with his parent. Well, his father died and then he lived with his elderly mother. And she said she didn't like to go out and leave him at home because, and this I think had actually happened, somebody could come to the door and HM would open the door, would not recognize the person, but would think, well, I have a bad memory and maybe it is somebody that my mother knows and would ask this chap in and the mother would come back from her grocery shopping and find this stranger sitting in the living room. Because HM quite logically had thought, well, you know, I don't remember, I have a bad memory and maybe this person, you know, is somebody my mother knows. This is true of all the patients here of Dr. Penfield's that I studied with the same memory disorder. There's a complete awareness of the fact that they have this forgetting problem and they are disturbed by it, but they never make up stories to confabulate or anything. It's not like somebody with a Korsakoff psychosis from alcoholism where there's much more involved than this system in the brain really and where you do get people making up stories and saying that they'd been downtown playing bridge when they never left the hospital and so on. HM wouldn't do anything like that. Well, before we close, is there anything else that you would like to talk about? I guess I've taken up a lot of your time. No, no, it's a pleasure. It's a nice, especially when you ask me about the split-bane patients, because that was a little treat for me. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't expect it. I was sure this was going to be all about HM and things leading out of HM, or else the general questions that you did raise about multidisciplinary. And we're so indebted to technology. I suppose I do like to emphasize that, because when I started here those years ago, we would have to trust so much what we could find out clinically and behaviorally. We got plain films of the skull. We got the shape of the ventricles of the brain, and that was about it. And even the beginnings of electroencephalography, of EEG, which is so important when you're studying epilepsy because it's abnormal electrical activity, after all, that you're looking for. We had a person to become a real-world expert in EEG, Dr. Herbert Jasper. But even with all Dr. Jasper's skills and so on, you know, EEG was so primitive in those days compared with what it was to become. And, of course, the imagery wasn't even dreamed of in those days, the imagery that we have now. So that the technology is making it possible for us to ask questions with more refinement, questions that, that it would have been stupid to try to answer years ago because we didn't have the tools. So I think uh, we're greatly indebted <laughs> to the technology. Yeah, I observed when I was talking to my guests about, we were talking actually about the MRI, it's in a way similar to the impact of the microscope. Yes. There's questions you can't ask until you have certain instruments. And I guess that's why the physicists are so excited about the Large Hadron Collider. (laughs) Yes, yes. But that doesn't take away from the importance of the creativity and curiosity of scientists like you who are the ones coming up with the questions. Well, this is right. I mean, this is where it's teamwork, interdisciplinary teamwork. It's really exciting. It's an exciting atmosphere to work in, you know. As I say, I feel very privileged to be part of this kind of environment. And we've been living in such exciting times across the last 20 years or so. We had a visitor here from Italy in neuroradiology yesterday, and we were all chatting just along these lines last night about just this, that things have moved so quickly over the last 15 years or so. The pace of this has been incredible. 
compared with previous periods, I think. And that's why in doing my podcast, I don't have to worry about running out of anything to talk about. Definitely not. And there's so many great people to talk to that I really appreciate you coming on the Brain Science Podcast. Thanks so much. Well, thank you very much. I've enjoyed it. Bye-bye. Bye. It was a rare honor to interview Dr. Brenda Milner, and I'm happy to say that she is apparently still in good health, even though she celebrated her 98th birthday in July of 2016. As I said at the beginning, this interview was recorded in 2008, shortly before HM died. I wanted to re-air it now, partly because I want new listeners to get a feel for the quality of the early episodes that are available to premium subscribers for only $5 a month, but mostly because I still think that Dr. Brenda Milner has not gotten the recognition that she deserves for her pioneering work, especially if you consider that the 1949 Nobel Prize for Medicine went to the neurologist who developed the frontal lobotomy which turned out to be one of medicine's bad ideas. What I enjoyed the most about this interview was to getting to hear what it was like to do these famous experiments from the woman who designed and performed them. And for those of us who are not scientists, I think it gives us a feel for why people do science, even though they could make much more money in other fields. If you want to learn more about Dr. Milner's work, I hope you will check out the show notes at brainsciencepodcast.com. There I will include links not only to the new book, HM, but also to an interesting free article that is available from the book's author, Luke Dittrich. And of course, you might want to check out the episode transcript, which has a lot of extra links in it. While you're on the website, I encourage you to explore the resources available and also to sign up for our free newsletter. That way you will get episode show notes automatically and never miss a new episode. Brain Science is independently produced by me and I try to keep it mostly free from advertising. That's why I depend on support from listeners like you. Premium subscribers are the show's main source of income, but you can also support the show with direct donations or via Patreon. Links for all these choices are available at brainsciencepodcast.com forward slash donations. Whether or not you can support the show financially, I hope you will share brain science with others, both in person and via your favorite social media. Next month, I hope to do a follow-up on last month's episode about the evolution of consciousness. And then in December, I will be doing a special 10th anniversary retrospective. I would love to hear from you. You can submit feedback on the website via the free Brain Science mobile app or by writing to me at brainsciencepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening. I look forward to talking with you again next month. Brain Science with Dr. Ginger Campbell is copyright 2016 by Virginia Campbell, MD. You can copy this recording to share it with others, but for any other uses or derivatives, please contact me at brainsciencepodcast at gmail.com. The theme music for Brain Science was composed and performed by Tony Catraccia. You can learn more about his work at syncopationnow.com.